John 18, uh, verse 33 through 40. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not from this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Then Pilate said to him, Also you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. And for this purpose I was born. And for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you do have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. This passage that I just read is just a, a blip on the radar of the entire crucifixion narrative, but it's so loaded with agony, but then also the true beauty of Christ. First, there's the irony and the mockery. Here we have a Roman soldier, a Roman governor, a man who at the end of the day holds no real authority, even in Roman terms. He's a powerful man in some ways, but he's a weak man. He's completely disposable, absolutely dispensable. And this man has before him the son of man, the king, not just the king, any king, the king of kings, the creator and sustainer of all things before him. And he mocks him. He thinks, this is probably just some homeless, crazy guy who's coming up and talking about, oh, I'm the king. Yeah, I'm the king of the Jews. So he hears him out. He plays around with him a little bit in mockery, not realizing who is before him. And then what happens later on in the text in chapter 19 deepens it. It gets worse. There we read, as Pilate comes out to the crowds in chapter 19, verse 15, the crowds yell, away with him, away with him. Crucify him. To which Pilate responds, Shall I crucify your king? And the high priests, who were the representatives of the people, say, oh, We have no king except Caesar. Now, to us it might not sound, it, it's, it's, just, it's true, right? Of course they didn't have any king but Caesar. There was, in effect, only one ruler over them at the time. But this wasn't an acknowledgement of just brute fact. This was them coalescing, denying everything, the, the, the prideful nationalism that, that held so strongly the Jewish community together at the time. They deny it. They say, no, we only have one king, and his name is Caesar. We're good with you, Pilate. We're good with what you're doing. Just make sure you get the job done, because this man is a problem. That's the first irony. The second irony is that Jesus, when he makes the statement, everyone is who, who is of the truth listens to my voice, Pilate comes to him with a question. 
question, what is truth? And the irony is that for us as readers of John, we know that the one who stands before him is the one who said in John 14, 6, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And no one comes to the Father but by me. And not just that. It's not enough that truth himself, the one who founds, the very foundation of truth, sits before Pilate, and Pilate continues to mock in this vein, but that all around there's this web of falsehood and dishonesty being knit together, webbed together by the Pharisees, by the Sadducees, by the priests, by the people. And Pilate sees through all of it. He knows what's going on. He knows there's envy. He knows there's jealousy of some kind. And he knows what he's about to do is not right. But instead of doing what he should have done, instead of what we would say justice prevailing, darkness prevails. Darkness covers the king of glory and falsehood, it looks like, overshadows the prince of truth. And then there's one other part that deepens this message. We consider another thing, which is Barabbas. The character here, Barabbas. Barabbas was a violent man. So we, we read here, the translation that I read said, Barabbas was a robber. We read in Mark 15, 7 that he was an insurgent. So he was, he was, there, was a, there was an uprising of the Jewish people against, the, against Rome, and this violent uprising was participated in by a lot of guys, Barabbas being one of them, and he murdered people in this insurrection. Some translations, they change it. Instead of putting robber, they put insurrectionist or even a terrorist. He was a man who, with others, did what he could to liberate his people from the oppressive hand of the Romans and attempt to demonstrate to those that held him down under their thumb, no, you're not in control of us. We have freedom. We are a free people. We don't belong to you. And they were crushed. They were destroyed. And what's interesting about this, though, we should be curious when we approach and we hear this because it's just a small parenthetical statement, right? Now, Barabbas was a robber. Why bring that up? Why mention the robber Why mention or, or insurrectionist? Why mention why Barabbas was in prison? This isn't the first time we come across this word in the Gospel of John. In John 10, verse 1, it says, Truly, truly, I say to you from the mouth of Jesus, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. And Jesus goes on to say, I am the gate for the sheep. I am the true shepherd. I am the one who exercises loving dominion over my people. And you read again, verse 8, same chapter. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. So why is this significant? It's significant because you get these two pictures of these false deliverers, of these false messiahs. On the one side, you have, you call the thief. And you think about passages like Ezekiel 34, where we read, Woe to you, shepherds of Israel, who only take care of yourselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You eat the curds, clothe yourselves with wool, and slaughter the choice animals, but you do not take care of the flock. Under the pretense of caring for the flock, these false shepherds abuse the people of God, disenfranchise them, and are self-preserving to the core. But then you have ones over here like Barabbas, 
one who would come in, who not unlike Moses, who also did a similar thing, killing an Egyptian, thinking this was the time, this is when my people will be delivered. And he thinks he can execute it by human means. Because he thinks that's the key. Because he thinks that's what needs to be dealt with. Because he doesn't see the greater foe, the greater thing that must be dealt with. Rome is all that's in his mind. In the mind of Moses, Egypt was all that he could see. The oppressors were the only thing before him. But no matter how zealous, no matter how committed any of these deliverers were to the purpose of liberating God's people, they were fighting a losing battle. Because even if Israel was liberated from its bondage to the worst, most corrupt, and absolutely evil oppressors in the known world, it could never liberate itself from its own bondage to sin and death. And here is where we see the coming king, the true coming king, the true shepherd of Israel. Jesus came as the conquering king. Make no mistake about that. But it was not with sword and spear. Because were he to do so, the whole earth, Israel included, would have been under his wrath, subject to the just punishment. No, Jesus, the true king, came to conquer what God alone could conquer. The sin-sick rebellion that is the posture and the ethos of everyone who has ever lived and the resultant consequence of this cosmic treason. And what does this conquering look like? Well, it looks like an insurrectionist, a violent man, what our text calls a robber, for all intents and purposes, just a domestic terrorist, walking free while the innocent one is condemned instead. No more chains, no more consequence, no more sentence, no death sentence, no lighter sentence, and actually the rebirthing of a hope for a future. It's unbelievable. And for those of us who are on the outside, were we to have been there at the moment, we would be screaming, this doesn't make any sense. This is evil. You released the murderer, this killer, this corrupt man. What has he done? What has he done to die in his stead? Release him. That's what we should be thinking. But it was not what we would have been thinking. Not in our brokenness. Not in our rebellion. Not in our sin. And as we consider the particulars of this text, it opens our eyes, I think, to another text also in the Gospel of John that we become all too familiar with. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the pretentious rulers, the Neros, the Caesars, the fools who were given too much authority. For God so loved the treacherous peoples, the high priests, the Jews who turned him in, the Roman soldiers. For God so loved the brigands, the murderous, and the violent. For God so loved these that he thought it right to bear their penalty that they might walk in freedom. 
And we see this work its way out through the rest of the scriptures, right? Because for every Pilate, for every one who goes, we don't know the results of what happens to Pilate, what happens to Barabbas. It's the only place in history that we read of Barabbas is in the Gospels. We know nothing of what happened to him afterwards. But regardless of what happened to him or to Pilate, for every Pilate, there is a Cornelius, another powerful Roman soldier who does bow to knee to Jesus, who does accept the invitation, who does come and participate in the Lord's table. And for every high priest who would turn Jesus in and betray him, there's a Nicodemus, a man of the Pharisees, who comes to Jesus at night, but then comes to make the open confession of the goodness and the lordship of Christ our King. And for every Barabbas, there's a Peter, an equally zealous, aggressive man, cutting the ear off of the high priest's servant in an effort to deliver Jesus. In all these situations, we see God, it is his delight and it is his way to conquer us by himself being conquered. And this is what we remember today on Good Friday. We're going to sing one more song here. And uh, on this day, we remember the should not perish part of John 3.16, the fact that we do walk away unscathed from the consequences of our sinful rebellion. In some sense, it's the, what are we delivered from? Delivered from wrath, delivered from a former way of life. And on Easter Sunday, we consider the latter part of the verse. Not just the negation of debt, an infinite debt, a debt that none could pay, but the riches of life eternal, abiding, abundant life. So as we sing this final song, let us remember our release, because Christ himself would not be released, purchased by the shed billet of Christ, and then let us also anticipate the hope of renewal that lies on the other side of Christ's work for us.